In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. O Manjushri, please accomplish this. Hey, good evening. Welcome. Great to see you all. This is a very festive occasion tonight as we go head first into the last of four courses that constitute the preparatory material for the traditional Shedra curriculum. Um, to full disclosure, is there's one other uh, preparatory text and topic that we haven't done and that I don't think we'll do at this time, which is the, what's called paths and stages, salam. Sounds like hello in Arabic, salam. But uh, it's uh, the paths and stages, and it just goes through in a, a sort of rote manner, the uh, lofty stages that uh, bodhisattvas attain on their path to Buddhahood, which is sort of out of the reach of most of us. So. Anyway, um, this one is the key preparation for understanding the Madhyamaka presentation of the nature of reality and how to work with that view as a path. And so this course is uh, particularly important and I think you'll find it particularly uh, helpful and um, more interesting and easier than the other three courses because it brings together all the material from the other courses and applies it to how do we actually um, uh, formulate all the little pieces into um, a sort of coherent system of uh, philosophical view. And we'll go through uh, uh, briefly, just briefly, we'll go through the views of the other schools, the non-Buddhist schools. And uh, in, in the introduction, there's an overview of them. And then in the uh, text, there's an introductory chapter that goes through them. So we'll go through those two introductory versions, but we won't go into each of the non-Buddhist schools in detail. So we'll focus on the Buddhist schools. And depending on how you you count the years, this is uh, either the end of our 20th year of the Rime Shedra or the beginning of the 21st year of the Rime Shedra. And I'll, I'll share with you the uh, list of courses that... The I put Rime... some lights up as the celebratory. I see that. That's so cool. Where do you do that? How do you do that? Go into video filters. There's all sorts of funny little things you can do. <laughs> That's we put on great. party hats, but I decided we'll go with lights. Yeah, yeah, I saw the party hat first. <laughs> that seemed a little silly, so I figured this it's a more broad Vipassana approach. <laughs> You're all welcome to <clears throat> join in with the silliness. 
Yeah, let me just share something with you. So here's the list of courses of the Rimeshedra since its birth. I don't know if you can see that. Yes. Yikes. <laughs> here's uh, before Rimeshedra at the Shambhala Center and then Radical Rejection in the spring of 2004. And so we've done, let's see, Frameworks of Buddhist Philosophy, which is the one by John Conchal from the Treasury of Knowledge, translated by Elizabeth Callahan. Uh, let's see. And then, where is it? Precious treasury. Oh, there it is. Precious treasury philosophical systems 49. So that's the other one on the four uh, philosophical traditions of the Buddhist tradition. Let's see, I think that's it. And then here's, here's uh, you can't see the top, but you have to remember, Abhidharma, Pramana, Logic, View, Path, Meditation, History. And so here's the breakdown by percentages. View, almost half the courses have been on view. And then 20% on meditation. And then very Are you an accountant? <laughs> yes, I was. <laughs> That's right. It's good. It's good. Information is good. Yes. Data is good. Yes. Eric, I, hear the I was not an accountant, but I, I do things just like that, but I was not an accountant. I can yeah. hear your crickets. Yeah, isn't that cool? Yes. Now they stopped, of course. Now can you hear them? No, they I just stopped. Before. Yeah. So you can only hear them when I have the headset on. Maybe that head then. Yeah, it's better with it. <laughs> That's so weird. Good evening, uh, Neil. Welcome. Good evening. Thank you. Sorry. Sorry I'm late. Great to see you guys. Thanks for joining us. I, this is an easy way of figuring out who's in the course. I just took a picture of you. <laughs> And uh, so, uh, Neil, do you have the uh, the text yet? I do. Yep. Cool. So we're all set. And Kevin, I emailed it to you. Have you got the email? All right. Okay. So, uh, and uh, uh, did everybody get the syllabus? If you didn't get the syllabus, let me know. I emailed like a group of people with the syllabus, everybody I could think of. I haven't gotten it, Jen. You're sure? Well, yeah. anyway. Um, so let's start. Okay, I'll send it. If you send me a note to remind me, that will, will uh, help. 
So let's start. Today we're going th through pages 1 through 17 of the um, the book. Hey, this is this is a another little uh, helpful quiz. Is take your book. Those of you that have hard copies of it, and put it down on your cushion so you can't see it. And Cynthia, like close your browser. Anybody that has a digital version, close your browser. Okay, you ready? What's the name of the book? <laughs> Anybody? The only reason I can Science? say is because oh, I ahead. changed the digital name, which was a bunch of numbers. Good, so good. I can do it. <laughs> what do you got? Without looking at it, you remember it? Science and philosophy of the Indian Buddhist classics philosophical systems <clears throat> yes yes close schools philosophical schools and it's it's a in as opposed to of science and philosophy in the indian buddhist classics uh, volume three <laughs> it's not an easy name to remember i know that's why i thought it'd be fun anyway so, so we're catchy on, uh, yeah so catchy, really. It's about as catchy as the the authors, right? Give me a, one second here. I gotta open the window. It's got really hot in here. New York is such a cool place. It gets hotter at night, you know, and like the humidity increases and the dew point goes up and it's like, whoa. The introduction by the Dalai Lama starts on uh, number one, page one, and he talks about how a decade ago he came up with this idea of uh, summing up all of the all the Dharma in the Conjure and the Tenjure, which is the collected treatises of the Buddhist tradition, the Conjure are the texts attributed to the Buddha, and the Tenjure is the collection of texts attributed to the uh, scholars of India. Into three broad categories, the nature of reality, the parallel of science and the classical Buddhist texts, the philosophical views developed in those sources, and based on those Buddhist spiritual or religious practice. So um, volumes one to two were the nature of reality, uh, the external world, the objective world, and the knower, the subjective world. and. Uh, Volume two also had a how to know, uh, the science of logic and valid cognition. And then uh, topic number two, the philosophical schools is in volume three of this series that we're holding either in our hands or on screen. And volume four has more on the philosophical systems, goes into uh, the complicated issues of the uh, the topics of debate sort of between the philosophical schools. And uh, we'll, we'll dive into the, after this, we'll dive into the root texts. 
of the tradition, starting with Chandrakirti's introduction to the middle way in Sanskrit, Madhyamaka Avatara. And then we'll go through the key presentations on the understanding of that text and, and the view of the Mahayana by the great uh, scholars of each of the four traditions or five traditions of Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, Tsongkhapa, uh, Gorampa of the Sakya, Tsongkhapa of the Galupa tradition, Gorampa of the Sakya tradition, and uh, Miki Dorje of the Kagyu tradition, and uh, Mipam from the Nyingma tradition. And then uh, Dolpopa from the Jo Nongpa tradition. So all five. And uh, maybe maybe uh, uh, I'll take stuff from the fourth volume here and there as helpful subsidiary material. But that's in the future. Let's talk about the present. Uh, um, so anyway, uh, his idea of three topics. The third one being Buddhist spiritual or religious practice did not make it into these four volumes. But uh, I don't know if you, how much you pay attention to what's published in the world these days, but Wisdom Publications has put out a series of nine volumes uh, attributed to the Dalai Lama and a Tibetan nun named Tupten Chudron. That is unbelievable wealth of knowledge on the but his spiritual and religious practice. So I think the Dalai Lama figures that's how he's accomplished the third one. Anyway, he goes through the difference between science and philosophy, which we've seen before. I'm going to skip that. And then the development of philosophy in India starts with the Sankhya school, among the earliest philosophical schools in India, dated by many scholars to be the eighth century before the Common Era. That's pretty amazingly early. And uh, they had a very comprehensive and profound philosophy with what he says every, every system needs is three elements. A view of the nature of reality, a path consisting of practices, what he calls psycho-spiritual practices. So I'm on page two, by the way. And a result, uh, presentation of liberation, which the path leads to. And... Uh, Sankhya had this, this system of 25 categories of uh, reality or aspects of reality. And this idea of prakriti, primal substance or primary nature, and then the purusha is the experiencer. And it had this subtle twist that the purusha is not the agent of actions, weirdly enough. Um, and through meditative concentration, one sees the nature of the true self. And um, this branch asserts that there's a creator god named Ishwara. And uh, the Indian traditions are great in, in having each of them having a different creator god, which is really cool. And uh, they had Ishwara as the creator that saying that the primary nature itself is a fixed potency and devoid of intent and it alone cannot be the creator of the world because it has no agency 
It maintains that it is a combination of God's intent and primary nature, the grand universal from which all manifestations appear that creates everything in the world, the cosmos and the natural environment and all the beings therein. So one of the earliest attempts to, to describe what the world that we experience and uh, regarding the self or Atman, although ancient Indian non-Buddhist schools by and large share with Sankhya the basic standpoint that the self is the experiencer and is eternal. So they all have this idea that there's this eternal self that's the essence of all beings or at least human beings. They diverge on its uh, specifics. And uh, they had extensive debates over the nature of the self, just like the Buddhists have extensive debates over the nature of non-self, interestingly. And he goes through some details of that in one of their core texts, the Brahma Sutra. And um, it, uh, this text refutes, let's see, uh, Wait a second. Chapter four, the Brahma Sutra. Oh, from the Vedanta school is one of the other schools. Uh, is one of the earlier non-Buddhist texts that goes through the process of analyzing the different schools and refuting their views. And uh, so we have Buddhist and non-Buddhist classical sources engaged in extensive debate over philosophical positions which helped advance the views of all the schools, refining their view by, by virtue of having to try to explain and defend their views is a very helpful process, really, really to think about like, what, what is it that you believe as a, so for us, it's like, we, you know, we say most of us here have probably taken refuge in the three jewels. Has anybody taken refuge in the three jewels here? I don't want to like, uh, point anybody out, but, uh, you know, I'm a card-carrying Buddhist. I took refuge in the Three Jewels. And so what do you believe as a Buddhist? You know, what are your beliefs? What do you say to people you meet or like, you know, you're a Buddhist? Oh, it's funny the, the ideas that people have of Buddhism, isn't it? <laughs> that you encounter. So uh, it's a helpful process. Like, what do I actually believe? What is, what is enlightenment? That's a big one, right? What is enlightenment? And like, theoretically we're meditating in order to achieve enlightenment and we all like probably most of us are like well that's not that realistic i'm just like trying to be a better person and be slightly kinder and less obnoxious and maybe a little happier in my mind neil what do you got uh, so, you know I, I like the question and i was on the website earlier today the Vimashedra website and on the front this page there you have ignorance is the cause of suffering i saw that also <laughs> which i like very much and so i thought that would be a good place to start if you're talking about belief as a buddhist we'll say more what does that mean to you what is, you know what is uh, i think suffering you know people can relate to pretty easily although it has a, a huge amount of subtlety in the buddhist tradition but what is right. ignorance what is ignorance and how does that cause suffering you know we often hear ignorance is bliss <laughs> and indeed it can be short term right but uh, so you would definitely have to bring in some other elements to that to explain what you mean but if you were trying to do it in shorthand it would be a good starting point it would be excellent, yeah. So what is ignorance in the Buddhist tradition? 
what are we ignorant of? Misperception of reality, perhaps. So we're ignorant of the true nature of reality. Right. And say more, what is the true nature of reality and what is our distorted view of it? Well, if I knew what the true nature of reality was, I would be enlightened. Um, um, so I would say that, you know, it's a process to become better informed of the true nature of reality. And then another process to be uh, opal in your reaction to what you learn is the true nature of reality. Any, anyone uh, comments or anything to add there? You know, so the, the key question is like, um, sorry to interrupt Cynthia, but just before, you know, having asked other people, then I like dove in, but just briefly, how does misperception of reality cause suffering? Why does that cause suffering? What's the big deal? I'm sorry, Cynthia. Well, I was just going to mention the notion of interdependence and non essentially non-entityness, um, but uh, as far as the nature of reality part that Neil was talking about, just to add a little more there, but um, what was your new question was about what is the, how, why? How does ignorance cause, how does misperception of reality, why is that a cause of suffering? Well, <clears throat> many ways to look at it, but I, I guess partly by thinking of ourselves as separate and unique individual beings and that everything else is something separate from us, then we want or don't want those things. And then we have this struggle of either trying to get more or get less of all of that we want or don't want. And uh, <clears throat> that tends to just cause more pain and suffering. Both for us and for others. Yeah. Someone told me they met this this woman who is the wife of uh, Lama Lama Kazi Samdrup, Kazi Dawa Samdrup, which he was one of the earliest Tibetans to translate esoteric texts into English. And uh, she met this woman in New Jersey at some event at the center. And the woman said to her, so are you a Buddhist? <laughs> she was very like confrontational. And this woman said, yes, I, I consider myself that. She said, so what is Buddhism? What is the essence of Buddhism? <laughs> and she started to say like, well, to be kind and to uh, um, something like that. And then this, this woman says, overcoming ignorance through wisdom. <laughs> that is Buddhism. Anyway. And then there's the ones that, that just say everything changes, right? <laughs> yes. Anyway, someday we'll talk about where the why I use the that quote, ignorance is the cause of suffering through the remation, the, the origin of that quote. I mean, it's sort of an obvious one for the remake, but it has a little bit of a backstory. But anyway, um, uh, the most consequential of the non-Buddhist Indian schools are Sankhya, 
Vaisheshika, Nyaya, Vedanta, Mimamsa, which is a drink, right? Isn't that a drink? Almost. And, Mimosa. Uh, mimosa. There, thanks. And the Jaina. And their views are set forth extensively in various Buddhist texts, such as Bhava Viveka's Blaze of Reasoning. Now, he's a guy with some good titles for his books. I like his titles. And Shantarakshuta's Compendium of Principles and sort of. They present other schools as well, but we'll focus on those in this book. Okay. At the bottom, I laughed at the fearing length uh, comment, considering yes. how long these books are. <laughs> yeah, really. Um, says Compendium of Principles is translated in, in this very archaic form, Jagananta Ja some Indian guy in two huge volumes of like a thousand pages or something. It's huge. The last sentence, despite important differences, it's undeniable that Buddhist thought shares many ideas and concepts with the non-Buddhists in schools that were part of the cultural sphere of, sphere rather, of ancient India, including the concepts of karma and rebirth, types of rituals, and the approach to ethics. You know, so all of this is uh, uh, sort of helpful to understand, I think, what what was the, the milieu that the Buddha appeared within and started to teach within. Buddha's philosophy evolved from Buddha Shakyamuni and other like, unlike other traditions, he taught the concept of no self. What a radical guy, incredibly radical, which became his hallmark. He taught his philosophy of no self in a culture milieu, milieu where belief in self was so widespread as to be universal. He therefore knew that he would face substantial challenge. In fact, the Buddha was compelled to declare. So this is theoretically what he said to himself, not to anyone else, after his enlightenment, when he thought about whether he should try to, to share what he had discovered at first. He thought not. Profound, tranquil, free of elaboration, luminous, and unconditioned is the description of nirvana that he gives. A famous description. And it's it's really the only way that nirvana is described in the early teachings is as being profound, tranquil, free of elaboration, luminous, and unconditioned. Sometimes also the deathless. Such an ambrosia-like truth I have found, were I to reveal it, none were would comprehend. So I will remain peacefully here in the forest grove. Uh, so there's no need to go into it in detail here, but in brief, the idea of non-self is we're not speaking of total non-existence. We're identifying an important disparity between our perception and reality. As Neil was talking about a few minutes ago, the reality that things do not exist the way they appear to. If they did, then by following an appearance, we would reach reality, where whatever that means. There would be no delusion where what we perceive is not real, and afflictions like attachment and aversion that arise based on the appearances that we superimpose onto actual reality. There would be none. Sorry, they arise. Neil. Sorry, just a quick question on that one. Is it actually always true that appearance doesn't doesn't correspond to reality? 
when we say that here, just kind of as a reminder that it's probably not true or mostly not true, but it's not necessarily not true. Yeah, that's it's a it's a very vast statement that mm. appearances are not reality. And what does that mean? Mm. You know, it's like what about the reality of appearances? Are appearances not the true reality of appearances? <laughs> so what, are, you know, obviously appearances are the true reality of appearances, but are they the, the implication is that appearances are, they're saying that they're not the true reality of the things that appear? Is that what they're saying? I mean, I'm to acknowledge a distinction between, you know, conventional and absolute reality, but it's not necessarily the case that the conventional appearance wouldn't be as good uh, an approximation of absolute reality as 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 is possible. Yeah, it's an interesting question. Thanks for that, Emily. I mean, I think where I uh, go with this is that it appearances always rely upon a subject who is to which the appearances are manifesting. So they're always subjective. Uh, and that, that therefore they can't true, like truly and completely represent objective reality because they're always subjective. So by uh, implication, you've implied a definition of ultimate reality as being universally true for all perceivers. Would, would you agree with that extrapolation? Or not perceivable. Or not perceivable, yeah. Because if it's being perceived, it's going to necessarily be subjective and therefore different for every subject. Do that is perceiving it. So there, you're, you're assuming there's a true reality that's not perceivable? Not necessarily, but... I, <laughs> what basis I don't, do you have for, for pre presenting that? <laughs> no, it's sort of the opposite. It's like uh, no appearance... Because my understanding of Neil's question is, well, couldn't there be some instances where an appearance is accurately representing the true reality of that thing? But in my mind, an appearance... An appearance rely always relies upon there being a subject, and therefore an appearance is always subjective, has a subjectiveness to it. So it can't have a, tr it can't be a true, a completely true representation of something. So of reality, you would say through the filter of the self and the mind as well with its five senses. So through all those filters, we're not truly perceiving reality. But it sounds like there's an implication in what you're saying that there is some objectively. There is a reality. Yes. We get is close there? I don't know. Is there without it? Yeah, yeah. But we without we appearance. Close to it, right? What's the, how do we? I know don't know. That? I don't think. Uh, yeah. That's, that's the question. Well, I'm nihilism. <laughs> I, I don't think that there's not a reality per se, but I don't think that there's a reality separate from, <clears throat> like, yeah, separate from yeah. perceptive experience, and that that is always 
to some extent subjective or it is always subjective completely subjective what is reality what do we mean <laughs> by reality or real i think we need a cheech and chong version of that question <laughs> that would be have to, what is reality man you know like yeah. <laughs> wow reality <laughs> I mean, you say the example it would be what is without filter that which exists without filter and that takes us back to emily's point um we can never comprehend that because we always perceive and can only perceive through a filter so so when you say that which exists without a filter i think are, are you saying that which exists separate from the filter that perceivers apply yeah. to them yes so the again wave, that implies that there is such a thing the way phenomena are that is beyond the filter that individual different perceivers um must necessarily apply because you can't perceive without it but this is where we get down to like um I mean, I think about like, what is light if if eyeballs don't exist, right? And so I'm, I wouldn't sit here and say there's no such thing as photons without eyeballs, but I would say there's no such thing as light without eyeballs and minds and stuff. And so then if you try to imagine what are photons, what is light if there's nothing there to perceive it? It's not that it doesn't exist, but in any way that we could possibly conceive of it, it relies upon a perceiver to exist in any way that we interact with it or can think about it at all. So it's not to say there's no such thing as photons, but light as a concept or light is, is reliant upon some kind of perceptive, you know, eyeball Nerve, nervous system, whatever, to only for, to only for us, though, right? Only for us, light could exist. We don't have to perceive it. No, but that's what. But it's not light, then. Uh, well, we, we, it's what we call light. It, right. it is something, but it's and it's what we call light. But if we didn't perceive it, it still exists. Mm, you know. But it's an interesting. What, what is light? Well, what is light if there's no eyeballs? Lots of other things exist that we don't perceive. And have no name for, obviously, because we're not aware of them. And yes, I'm, I, I, I just recall uh, an article I read saying that, you know, we, um, we only, the uh, universe, uh, as defined by physicists, um, we can only account for 14% of all matter and energy. The rest is completely unknown. Dark matter, dark energy, we don't have a clue. But it exists, apparently. Well, you know, we have a placeholder, you know, to kind of complete our calculations. We don't even know, as you say, Kevin, we don't even know what it is. We call right. it dark matter. We just, right. you know... It, but, but there are there are many forms of radiation that we we can't perceive and that yeah. even, other, even other animals such as birds and insects perceive 
um, and use every day for lots of things, but we yes. are unaware of them. But these so are all sentient beings, right? So it's interesting to imagine just thinking about what does it mean for something to exist if no sentient being ever appeared in the universe at all? It's not to say the particles aren't there, but what does it even mean for them to be there if there's never even, you know, the most primitive eyeball that formed on the earliest and, you know, creatures on this planet? What is light then? Right. Are, are we the only arbiters of what exists because it appears through our mind? No, no. But but what does it mean for something to exist? Like if you imagine a universe with zero sentient beings ever, what does existence mean in an instance like that? It's not to say that things aren't out there, but there's no like... Um, I think what I'm getting at is any definition we can come up with something existing in my mind anyway, relies upon some sentient being and it doesn't have to be a human, but some sentient being. And by uh, sentient you mean appearances, right? You know, We're trying to get yeah. between appearances and reality. And from humans, you can talk about that difference between appearances and reality. You're right, Emily. You can also talk about that for other sentient beings. They presumably have appearances and right. how they approximate they what we're trying to call or identify as reality differs from the way how an appearance to a human approximates it. But we're trying to say that there is a reality that has nothing to do with appearances or may have, which is what, so, what the sentence says. This sentence says appearances are always not reality. And so, so, so to overcome our ignorance we have we have science but science is not enough because all we're still perceiving so the other part is the philosophy hence the books are called science and philosophy and what is <laughs> philosophy knowing the self right so it, and that's as close as we can come to overcoming our ignorance Right. We ultimately Thank you. Thank you all very much. And the pink elephant in the room, of course, is the the uh, universally assumed presumption that there is something out there that all of you seem to have. Yeah, but this is what I was I was questioning that because. Thank you. You were. That's true. Um, and I, I the other thing that I thought we could throw in here just as the classical example of you know, perception and that, you know, the whole thing of like water being to, to the human beings is Amrita to gods and pus to some other uh, realm and uh, it's like air for fish and all of those, you know, metaphors and examples. And so if you think about it, even with that, you know, simple little example, then if you try to sort of extract and say, all right, is there actually a, a thing behind all those? If you think about it, you can't really do that because each perception is its unique perception. And so it's our it's part of I think it's part of our ignorance to try to believe that there's actually a thing out there that's underlying all of the even even if we look at that construct and understand there's different views, there's still that's still we still have that tendency to think there's a, some underlying thing that's clean of all those filters. But not necessarily.
Well, it does seem logical so, by implication that if we keep discovering things that we were unaware of before, that there are more things and more reality to discover that we're currently unaware of. But it's all still so based on like uh, our our particular methods of perception or what we imagine to be the methods of perception of other beings. Like, I, I agree with what you're saying, Cynthia. I think that's what I was trying to get to, but maybe not saying so eloquently. Like, what what could reality possibly be without uh, some perceiver uh, through which the experience is being subjectively filtered? It's just, it's... Uh, so, so are maybe you, we yeah, all have the same set of goggles, virtual reality goggles. <laughs> we all have that same set, and we're all just seeing the same show because we're all on the same channel. That's and really, kind of, there's absolutely it, nothing the out show. there. The Truman Show. It's the Truman Show. We're all just seeing the same show because we all have these eyeballs, and these eyeballs are programmed to see a certain reality so to speak or appear so, so is there no ultimate reality is that what is being suggested that's a possibility that there is no ultimate reality and the so ultimate reality is there is none I, I was recently reading sorry um something i can't remember the article source at the moment i could find it but it was really talking more about mind as the projector rather than the perceiver and this notion that we're constantly sort of projecting and modeling. And so I, that's the I other thing. That. You yeah. saw that also. Yeah. I can't it remember. Was, it was an excerpt from the Eon, this weekly. Uh, right, right. I, that's it. It's a very good I was day. thinking of sharing it around, but I. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. yeah, we yeah do that. Share that to us. So somebody has come up with this wacky idea that the mind projects reality. <laughs> yeah. Reality? Yeah. It was basically wow. sort of postulating that whole view. Um, and, and trying to sort of, in a way, sort of correct our misimpression that we're actually um, perceiving and instead we're actually, you know, kind of modeling uh, constantly and it's sort of like a constantly updating um, uh, model. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's quite, it was, it was a useful, mm -hmm. you know, uh, article. How, did, how, how does this, how does she deal with the uh, question of like, why do we all model the same things well i just liked what you were saying in terms of having the same glasses you could also have the same program installed you know Evolution. Uh, i mean yeah say it conditions reality instead of projects it and that's we're all biological beings so we're conditioned by it conditions a perception a system of perception there's yeah. no actual like we, we keep thinking there's some fabric that we're projecting onto. But maybe there's no fabric that we're projecting onto. It's just, yeah, it's just the whole thing, whatever we perceive it as is, you know, it, yeah, it's not, it's not like a screen or anything. That's not that simplistic, but it's just, it's, it's more of a 3D projection, I guess you could say. And our interdependence, simply a manifestation of that, whatever we are, that is, and it's our reaction and interaction with that, and it's with us. So why do we project things that we don't like? <laughs> that is such a great question that I always ask. I can't understand that at all. If we're just projecting, why would we project things that we don't like? 
we're not just projecting. Uh, we're as uh, danger. reacting to our instinctual conditioning, essentially, you know, fear-based, survival-based. But but conditioning is um, presumes that there's something that conditioned us, isn't it? Mm, no. Well, yes, I guess not. Not not some external force that conditioned us. Genetic, chemical, you know, uh, gene replication, impulse, whatever you want to call that. But why would they? Why would they? develop in any you know way differently than they were before why would they change if there was no external medium that was providing a change in circumstance yeah, why well, would... external medium. are we conditioned by culture i thought you said there is no external medium that we're projecting it no we are interacting with well, uh, so there is a reality uh, out there but it's not kind of us and them. It's like it's all the same. Um, we are just a component and a uh, an element in that. And that's not it's not us making it or it making us. It's all happening. Which is part of it, and we're part of a a, a tradition and culture of Western you know, post-industrial civilization, but there are many other perceptions and many other conditionings of the reality, some of which, you know, may be radically different from us. That's what but, I think. But you so know, we're back to presuming that there is something out there. Well, isn't it that I, it's, it's not like my mind is sitting here isolated, making everything up. It's that this idea of, uh, mind fabricating everything is a collective experience so all of us plus other sentient beings uh like animals are my like this there's all these minds are there's like a collective mind experience happening that's agreeing upon uh these characters characteristics come together to make this thing look and feel this way um, or the classic one that we've talked about in other classes of like, people didn't even really realize the sky was blue until there came a certain point where they, everyone decided it was blue. And then now it all looks blue to everybody. You know, it's like, um, we, there's this, this mind, the sort of fabric we're talking about here, in my understanding, is like a fabric of minds coming together, but that's not interacting with some tr completely objective, true outside reality it's like all the minds melding to generate this fabric of perception that we all agree upon sort of. and melding by default not melding consciously it just kind of you know it's, it's as each as each individual sentient being reacts to stimulus however imperfectly or inaccurately perceived and that stimulus is both external and internal, genetic, biological, um, that creates a reality which may or may not be shared by others, which may or may not kind of on the societal civilizational level, as, as Kevin's saying, you know, creates a whole other layer on top. So um, is, is there, are there uh, sources of stimulus? You said there's a stimulus. Hmm. So the stimulus has a source. Is the source of stimulus perceptible by different beings maybe the same source of stimulus so there's something out there independent of us that 
becomes interdependent. Uh, but I thought you said there was an article where this person was presenting the opposite, that the, our minds project. Not, not exactly the opposite. Uh, he, he was simply saying that, as Cynthia was trying to explain, I think um, we tend to think of it as our, our minds processing external stimulus. But in fact, what may be more accurate is we are, um, if, if that's true, we are projecting a reaction to the stimulus to kind of rationalize or explain the stimulus. We're more a projector no. than a receiver, no. is so what he's saying. We're more of a projector than a receiver. Uh, he more was, of a projector than a perceiver, Kevin. But then uh, Chris, and then then Neil. So it's the self that's projecting. If you overcome the self, oh, the self that's projecting. So there's a real self. No, if you can uh, wait, that, how can something not real project? So, so if I don't know, Mary Beth, help us out. Mary Beth, what do you got? See, she's the only one that knows the answer by not saying anything, right? It's like the Vimala Kirti Sutra, where they all go around and like give this, give these fabulous explanations of the nature of reality, and then they ask Vimala Kirti. Manjushri is the last one to speak, and he gives like this amazing presentation of uh, Shunyata. And then they say, but what about you, Vimalakirti? You haven't said a word. Please share with us your wisdom. And he just remains silent like Mary Beth. So, so you know, that was a good example of like, um, we, we know the four Buddhist schools, right? We all know them by now. What's the first Buddhist school? You know, let's just dive into the heart of the matter. We all read, hopefully you uh, if you haven't read the reading for tonight, you'll read it. It's just—it's mostly a list of uh, names of people and places and texts, and it just sort of sets the framework for the study. But uh, what, what are the four Buddhist schools? What's so we're the talking Vibhashika, Samtantrikas, Yogacara, uh, or the Chichabhatrins and the Madhyamakans. Madhyamaka. Yeah, yeah, you can add on the yoga charms as uh, the special case. They yeah, actually they, put them together, I noticed, which is like, they made them synonymous, which I thought it's was a few thing. But yeah. you know, actually, in the talk that Tonton Jinpa did, I think it did come up in there, and he did kind of acknowledge the great Madhyamaka Yogachara being different than Chittamatra. That's nice. That's nice. That's very magnanimous of him. To acknowledge it. <laughs> no, it That's seemed, good. I mean, he seemed to be fairly open-minded, at least in verbal communications. Yes, he's totally open-minded. I, I, I don't know if you guys remember, I think many of us saw he was uh, interviewed by Karma Punsok on Sadra Foundation. They did a whole series of interviews of scholars about Buddha nature. Anyway, uh, so... What 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 would be the view of the Vaibhashika school in this sort of, you know, without using a fancy language and categories and stuff? What is the view of Vaibhashikas of the nature of our world? 
Are they partless particles? They are. They they are. Yeah. So you can so break everything down to tiny little pieces. How would you describe and, and moments that? of time? Yes, moments of time. Right. So so collections of particles don't have inherent reality, but if you break them down to their tiniest parts, those do have uh, inherent existence. So go back to uh, the difference between appearance and reality. Uh, reconcile. So the appearance would be like a chair uh or some kind of collection of particles so, that make so we, we all have uh, you know a multitude of appearances that we experience through our senses and uh what is the nature of those appearances and and what is the nat the the reality of those appearances and what is the reality of me as the perceiver that those are entirely interdependent and therefore don't have an inherent permanent existence separate from other things right on a simpler level they're compounded they're you know yes. every every one of the things that we perceive is compounded and made up of smaller and smaller parts till you get down to those partless particles so there is an ultimate particle right there there is an ultimate substance to things either material or uh, conscious so there's a conscious reality that has uh, a uh, ultimate particle. And so I'm using the word ultimate deliberately. So the ultimate reality is those ultimate building blocks. And appearance is what? The compounding of those into... Right, the like compounding the of those yeah. into objects and... And see if you can describe what's the compounding of moments of time. A thought or a concept? Oh, moments yeah. of time. I don't know, like an experience? Yeah, like a span of time, <laughs> like a <Yeah>. second. <laughs> yeah. Right. <clears throat> and moments of consciousness. So how do, how do we grok that one? What's, what is, uh, you know, there's like an ultimate moment of consciousness and then there's a conglomeration of con conscious moments that is appearance. What is the appearance? So would that be like a thought or an emotion or a... Yeah, yeah, or yeah. an experience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, so when we have a thought or a, or a, what did you say, a thought or a emotion or an emotion or a memory or any sort of conscious experience that's a concatenization of numerous ultimate moments of consciousness right and that would include sense perceptions right when we have a sense perception yeah and uh, mind is able to perceive matter when it's conglomerated right but so there's a difference between appearance and the difference between appearance and reality in the particularist school or the atomist school is that appearances seem to be whole there seem to be things that are unitary like chairs and people and computers and so forth whereas in reality they're just conglomerations of numerous little uh, ultimate particles. And the distortion is, so what's, what's the 
ignorance in this case? What 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 is ignorance in this case of the Vaibhashikas? Confusing. I mean, wouldn't it be that the conglom yeah that the conglomerations have a real like a some sort of permanent or a distinct reality to themselves? Yeah. So thinking that the the compounded phenomena have uh, some sort of permanence. Thinking that. What else about the compounded phenomena? That they're separate, it's basically all the marks, right? Yeah, yeah. What, what are the marks? What else? Separate. Uh, not independent and right. permanent. Independent, yeah. Not dependent. So we think that phenomena conglomerate into, uh, that's that's our delusion from the very simplest level of uh, understanding of or presentation of the universe in the uh, Buddhist tradition, and it's it's uh, very similar to what type of person in the West? The atomist. Yeah, the atomists, the materialists. All there is is matter, right? And the only difference is that they don't accept mind as a separate substance. And they don't accept what else. When you say they, which they are you talking about? Materialists. The, materialists? the, the right. Mind. I mean, yeah, mind and. Um, Do they accept karma? No. <laughs> Do they accept uh, the uh, uh, the efficacy of ritual or ethical behavior? No, I think ethics gets way, a little complicated with materialists, but generally, I guess pure, a pure materialist would say no. Yeah, but a no, lot, most of them do it anyway, right? Interestingly yeah. enough. Yeah. Right. I, I know my father but, would. Sorry. Yeah, uh, one of the things it seems is there's no acceptance of impermanence. Of there's no what? That, that there's no acceptance of impermanence. No acceptance of impermanence. They think things are permanent. Yeah, materialism. Yeah, yeah they think. Yes, yeah. But I mean, even I, in an ordinary sense, the the I mean, there's the sort of obvious ordinary they have half lives. They have half lives of every every uh, substance has a half life, so it's deteriorating. So if they're scientists, they know that, right? And they believe that every material substance is slowly deteriorating. Well, and they're like the Vibhashikas, like, uh, you know, if you think of a materialist uh, physicist in that they they wouldn't say a chair has inherent reality, but they would say that like a quark or like the tiniest particles has inherent reality. Um, right. But I think they would also say that that will eventually come to an end when the universe ends and then there won't be any particles. And so what's the cause of suffering for for a particularist? Inflation, um, <laughs> not getting what you want, getting what you don't want, not knowing what you want, birth, old age, sickness and death, you know, the, the main things, right? What about um, the, the one one huge difference between Vaibhashikas and materialists is what? I'm still, still trying to get somewhere. 
Vibhashikas, remember, are Buddhists. And what do Buddhists believe? Well, you had already mentioned mind, so uh, as being a separate compassion. No self. A lot of them have compassion. No self. Yeah, a lot of them believe. Most materialists believe. Although when you when you when they really drill down, they're like, no, there's no part of the human body that is the self. That the self is like the like the mind is an emergent property of the the organism, right? It's the the whole of the yeah. organism. And like you know, there's no part of the brain that's like it, right? Do, do they actually go through that line of questioning though? They don't care. They don't really. They don't. You know, if you did, they, they would like. Like, uh, have you ever read uh, Diderot? There's this. I, I, somehow, my older brother had me read this this cool book by Diderot. I'm probably saying his name incorrectly, even when I was a young kid. And he talks about how, like, when you uh, you could go from stone and you could chop a stone up and into really fine little particles, mix it into your food and then eat the stone and then somehow it becomes part of your body and part of your consciousness and then you've you know how, how do you turn inanimate matter into um animate conscious matter how do we have conscious you know what's the difference between inanimate matter and conscious matter for materialists you know so they say well consciousness is an illusion right but let's go back to what we said. What's the basic fundamental premise of Buddhism that the, the old lady screamed at my friend? Well, overcoming ignorance through wisdom. Yeah, which is a definition of... Enlightenment? Enlightenment, liberation. Materialists don't have any sense of liberation, right? Huge, light years difference, right? Other things, you know, karma, um, the three worlds, rebirth, <laughs> rebirth, huge differences, right? So Vaibhashikas believe in all these things, the Vaibhashika school, right? So that's their description of reality. And the, the disconnect is between appearance and reality is that we fixate on conglomerations as being real sources of happiness. That's the main one is that we think phenomena are sources of true happiness. And so we pursue them endlessly and we spend our lives focused on achieving wealth and possessions and people and experiences, whereas those are not true means of happiness, right? Sautrantikas school, what's the difference between Vaibhashikas and Sautrantikas? What is a Sautrantika? It's a four-legged creature that um, is nocturnal and eats, shoots, and leaves, <laughs> right? This, this panda bear comes into a bar and uh, he orders a dish and the guy serves the dish and he gobbles it down and he pulls out a gun and he shoots the, the other guy at the bar. And the bartender's like, what the fuck is going on? What are you, some kind of alien creature? And he says, no, I'm a panda bear. That's what I do. Look it up. And the guy, look, you know, takes out his phone and 
Googles and Panda Bear eats, sh shoots, and leaves. <laughs> Sorry, the, the Panda said, Bear leaves. I mess up the whole joke. He shoots the, the guy and leaves. And the other guys at the bar are like, what was that? <laughs> so I just finished a, a, a slightly old crossword puzzle that the theme was punctuation matters. <laughs> It sure does, doesn't it? So that it? applies in this case, too. Punctuation is real, and it's the difference between appearance and reality. I <laughs> don't know if I'd go that far, but it, it, it is helpful. So for, for uh, Vaibhashikas, there, there's a true reality, right? And, and we have the difference between appearance and reality. It appears that conglomerations of spans of moments of consciousness are what we call experience and conglomerations of particles are what we call things but in reality it's just there's a, a sea of particles and moments and they morphine constantly and there's no owner and there's no owned sautrantikas what is it what what does add to vibhashika view it's actually not a lot, particularly in terms of the key question that we were talking about of uh, um, what is the cause of suffering. You know, looking looking for true happiness from that which does not provide true happiness. And uh, but anyway, what what's you know? So what is the wrinkle, the difference in Vaibhashikas and Sautrantikas? Any any recollections? Don't they get rid of um, particles having re matter? The particles having reality? They do. They say that partless particles are logical imp impossibilities, right? Right. How do they? Why do they say that? Because you can't have the. This is just a guess. But you can't have the particle without some perception of it i mean skin back to what we we're talking about at the beginning is that like go ahead cynthia no it's, it's a little bit more like just basic geometry you know that if you have oh right a particle then there's the notion of four sides or eight sides or however many sides it has to be and that if as soon as you have sides then you basically have you know this and that and and something to the left and something to the right and the top and bottom if you didn't have all of those things then everything would just collapse down into, you know, nothing. So it's essentially like the notion of building blocks. They were, you know, they're saying that that it, it just doesn't make sense to conceive of, you know, because basically partless would mean no sides, no top, no bottom, and that just doesn't make That's sense. Right. Can't stack yeah. up the blocks. So partless particles are an illogical uh, view just totally illogical impossibility and same with moments of consciousness how could you have a stream of consciousness or an experience made up of moments of consciousness if the moments are in uh indivisible and and don't have a beginning and an end how how could you stack up one moment to the next moment or the moment before it if it didn't have a beginning or an end and you is know, there space between the moments yeah and 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 you or know I, I see some i see some puzzled looks which is great it's sort of like how could they possibly have thought about moments of time in that way of having like concatenation concatenation 
ability like how can how can you put one moment of time next to another moment of time if you could you could alter their order right you could say no i want this moment of time to go before that one <laughs> and future would come before the past <laughs> but it's more about you know they they somehow focus on moments of time but it's really moments of consciousness time when you when you you know if you really um grab a vibhashika by their collar what's it called you you pin them down you uh then they would say no there's it's not moments of time it's moments of consciousness there's there's conch there's there's irreducible particles of matter and there's irreducible part uh, particles of uh, mind irreducible irreducible um units of mind right and uh, so the Sautrantikas dispense with that illogical concept <clears throat> and then they add a subtlety to what basic process that occurs in all sentient beings. You guys know this. You're just like, nobody's saying it. Come on. What does Sautrantikas talk about all the time? Are they the logic people? They have logic. Yeah, they're, they're into logic, into using logic. And um, but what, what about in terms of experience? How do they describe experience? So for Vaibhashikas, how does uh, perception of subject and object occur? When you see something, when you oh, see an right. object, what's happening? So I think in the Vaibhashikas, they actually think that we perceive the object somewhat directly. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, the Sautantrakas introduced that notion of the mental image or uh, that third, that extra step in between, that we're not actually seeing the supposedly out there object. Is that right? Is that the, yeah. yeah, yeah. That is the main distinction. So that whole so, concept of the cognition that that we talk about that's yeah, that. yeah so it's like in vibhashika world in particleist world everything's uh particles and so the question is like between us and the chair the proverbial chair that we talk about endlessly as being the proverbial real thing out there that maybe you're sitting on or staring on or whatever putting your feet on what uh what exists between us and other objects in our environment i.e in the air so-called air or space are there particles there just normal common sense yes or no <laughs> yes yes thank you what are their particles of? I mean, in the Western world, we know they're particles of uh, air. Car what is what is air? CO2 or something like that. Nit right? Nitrogen and oxygen, I think. Nitrogen and oxygen, right? So is that right? Something like I don't know. Air is a complex molecule, actually, right? Uh, but if you're in water, there's 
uh, H2O. So what do, what do uh, Vibhachakas believe that air consists of? If everything's particles, there's particles of... Particles of air. Air. <laughs> particles of air. Thank you. <laughs> I don't know why this is so funny to me, but yeah, they're, they're particles of air because there's five elements, right? There's the elements, the great elements and particles of water, particles of earth, particles of air, and they conglomerate. And then when you have enough particles of air, you can experience air. You can breathe it. You can fly in the air. You can float in the air. You know, air has a, a substance. You know, if you have a feather and you drop it, it doesn't go clunk. It floats in the air because the air is presenting resistance because it's an actual object. It's a thing that has particles of air. So between me and the chair, how do my eyes see the chair? Does, you know, and use uh, scientific knowledge. Light uh, comes from a light source and reflects off the reflective surface of the chair and beams itself into our eye sockets. Right, that's the Western version of visual perception. Vibhashikas say that the eye faculty actually goes out somehow magically and contacts the object that it sees, which is why you can't see things that are behind another object because <laughs> it's blocked. <laughs> Although somehow they can see through all that air. Which, yeah, which they never really talk about. But air, I guess, is is a, a, a invisible substance or something. Yeah, it has or a special non-obstructive. Yeah, like space. You know, they, they believe space is a real thing. And so objects exist in space. And they may actually say between you and the chair is space and not air. Not, you know, it's debate. It's an interesting question. No, it's not that interesting. It's a potential question. <laughs> That's actually not that interesting, but um, and then Sautrantikas refine that, and they they say, how does perception happen? And and we make a big deal about this, or they make a big deal about it, because it has major ramifications for uh, the the basic. Uh, fundamental premise that we spoke about earlier of like what is the cause of suffering the misperception of appearance as being reality there's something around that i can't remember how you guys presented that those of you that did but um so in sautrantika how does perception occur it's much more like western science much more like yeah, Mary Beth. It's like an image is yeah, the, inside. The, yeah, you see the image of the thing. Not yeah, the it's thing. much more like the Western science, you know. So I sort of confuse things by by describing the Western science point of view when I went through Vibhashikas. Vibhashikas don't really think that light goes from the is reflected off the object into the eye. They actually think that the eye faculty has the ability to extend out through space and contact the object 
and the function of light is to illuminate the object but not bounce off the object into the eye and so the satrontic is more like okay the their version of light bouncing off the object into the eye is that the object uh, projects a image of itself into our visual system our sense our eye sense faculty and our eye sense faculty recreates that image in perfect uh, detail and it's called the aspect or some such thing depends on what english term you use cynthia so that's interesting because in addition to the introduction of the image idea but what you're i think what you're also saying is that the for the vibhashikas the process starts with the faculty going out to the object and what you just said about the satantrikas is it's more like the object is projecting to the faculty so it's it's sort of like a a different origination even is that yeah. true or is it like a is there an extra step where the the object i mean the does the faculty sort of like what comes first there in terms of um, oh that yeah well that's interesting so the sequential aspect in the vibhasha because the um the the eye faculty perceives simultaneously with the existence of the object so if you have an object that's that's uh, rapidly changing then you're perceiving every moment of it as it changes as it happens sequentially chronologically whereas sautrantikas have a cause a sequence of cause and effect for vibhashikas in some ways they're very clever they say well cause and effect happen at the same time because otherwise they can't actually connect and so you're perceiving what's happening now whereas sautrantikas are like well no you're perceiving what happened the moment before at first there's the moment that the cause occurs and then the moment of the effect and the projection into the uh, sense faculty and so the sense faculties are like these passive receivers of the sense impressions caused by sense objects into that faculty because that faculty is open and um and the the significance is that we perceive our inner replication of external objects and we mistake the internal image as being the real thing and the internal image is even though i i mean i said it replicates it perfectly it replicates uh, what it's capable of perceiving you know and we talked earlier about there's uh, uh, certain ranges of light and sound that were are imperceptible to our eyes and so forth and uh, our eyes have certain defects in terms of distance and and visual strangeness you know it looks like the the floor goes up have you ever noticed that when you look across the room it looks like the floor is going up and that if I walked across the room, it would be uphill. We don't notice that because like we're we're all conditioned to accept that our eyes are doing that and this and the ceiling is like falling. <laughs> That's one way to describe what they call perspective in the, in the right. right. So 
so then in terms of these two um, used in in each if we go to the next step which is that the consciousness arises right so because basically you have the perception and then and there's consciousness is that in these systems as well and that the consciousness is a is in the Vibhashika case it would be co-arising with the meeting of the faculty and the object and then in the yeah. case and then in the case of the Sautantrikas it would be co-arising at the moment of the mental image being conceived of so right there's even a next moment so the 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 image is replicated in the visual system which which in some sense is uh stupid right the the senses are stupid and the mind is blind they say right the mind can't see and the senses can't understand what they see so they have to work together so the replication of the object in the visual system is sent to the mind and the mind understands what it's what the eyes are seeing so is that the moment where it goes from being a it, it goes to being a generally characterized phenomena well initially there's the first moment of mental consciousness is direct it's still right. considered to be a cognition of a specifically characterized uh, phenomena so the mental consciousness goes both ways it has that capability of doing direct valid cognition not meaning direct meaning non-conceptual valid meaning uh, um, reliable cognition and then it then it the next moment it goes into um, indirect uh, inferential at best cognition oh I'm seeing a flower or a chair or whatever it is but the, uh, that, oh god no I was gonna shift so so I was just gonna say the the in the Dalai Lama's introduction or concluding points he like sums it up really well he says the Satantrika assertion is that cognitions of perceived objects are generalized mental constructs whose instantiation may include unique particulars. I thought that was That's a really great. good description. Where is that? So I, I'm on digital, 16. so I don't have the same page numbers, but it's under concluding points in the middle of the paragraph. Similarly, the Satantrika assertion. So it's right at the end of his introduction. You see that? <clears throat> Page seven. Seven, is it? Yeah. Under concluding points. Explained up in the box. Thank you, Neil. Yeah. So say it again. It says the Satantrika assertion that uh, is that cognitions of perceived objects are generalized mental constructs whose instantiation may include unique particulars. And he goes on, and their rejection of a self of persons paved the way to accepting the Chinamatra view of selflessness of phenomena. But that first half I felt like was what we're talking about here. That's great. So this is a great what little page summary. What is that in the, uh, uh, in the E version? On mine, it's page 22. I'm on a Kindle. I don't know if you're on the same. Oh, okay. Probably different. Yeah. So yeah, it's in but the, it's the last. Yeah. Concluding under concluding points. points. So let's go through that just to, to end. Scholars compare the four Buddhist philosophical schools to steps on a staircase to heaven. 
understanding the views of the lower schools as steps leading to the views of the higher schools, the Vaibhashika rejection, for example, of an external universal, an external creator, sorry, an eternal universal, an eternal creator, and so on, paves the way for accepting the Sautrantika rejection of unique particulars as the reference of words. <laughs> what is the ref what is a referent of words? What does that mean, the referent of words? I, is it the idea of something that is the basis on which we apply a name? Yeah, it's what the word refers to. That's right. The referent of to, words. When you're, trying to, when you're asked to define something, you're supposed to do it without using the word itself, right? Right. <laughs> That's why I had to not say refer. <laughs> Except the dictionaries do it all the time, but. Yeah, that is true. Uh, let's see. Oh, sorry, I got lost. Uh, Pave the way for the Sautrantika rejection of unique particulars as being the reference of words. Uh, so they're implying that the Vaibhashikas don't understand this subtlety that uh, words refer to their unique particulars and uh, the process of generalization that occurs because of the way that the perception occurs that we just talked about. When the perception, when the replication of the outer object occurs in the sense faculty, in the next moment, uh, you know, the first moment of consciousness, it's direct mental consciousness. And then the next moment, it becomes intermeshed with this generalized uh, understanding of what it is we're seeing. There's a, and then the next moment after that, there's a verbal label. But first, there's the nonverbal labeling. That's like, oh, I'm seeing red or yellow or a box or a square or a circle or a person or, you know. Um, so basically, that if, if you're making that distinction, the process is first sort of like the the memory, it's sort of connecting the the present experience with past experience. Like, <clears throat> that's huge. Grouping, kind of grouping. Thank you for name is that right yeah and that's huge you said the magic word of the memory so it's like we have this this memory bank of prior experiences and uh preconceptions that then filters what we experience in, in and is that, that also that process that we say is sort of a negating process as opposed to a it's like the, the leaving out is like right supposed to include right. it right direct valid cognition is inclusive and positive uh, experience in the sense that it presents itself as itself whereas the generalized phenomena characterized pheno uh, uh, perception of generally characterized phenomena is a process of negating everything that we think does not apply to the subject and we come up with this idea of flower or chair. Similarly, let's see, uh, as their unique particulars are the reference of words, it's denial of substantial existence of permanent entities. So that's uh, partless particles. That's a 
complicated way of saying their denial of partless particles. And it's positing of general characteristics as mental constructs, which is what I just refer to in a clunky way. But it paves the way, that whole thing about memory, that uh, perception is then filtered or, or impacted by memory leads to one key feature of the Chittamatra view, which is which is what? Mind only. Uh, the Aliyah Vijnana? Uh, yeah, before mind mm -hmm. only, the Aliyah Vijnana, Vijnana, that there's this aspect of consciousness that's the subconsciousness, that's the container of all those predispositions and preconceptions and stereotypes and so on and so forth that filter our perception. It's the Aliyah Vijnana. Um, and their rejection of a self of persons, which the the Vibhashikas reject. Uh, so the way they're presented here, if you go back up, the Vibhashika rejection of an ex eternal universal, an eternal creator. So um, their rejection of the Atman is more of like a, a general principle. The idea is in, in this in this formulation of these schools as they're presented here, which it's important to understand, is is somewhat of a stultified uh, version of a set of views that different authors present in different texts. That's conveniently sort of packaged into units so that they can be categorized as one school or another. But um, so the Vaibhashikas reject an eternal universal, which uh, can be, a, which is the Atman as the eternal universal, an eternal creator, which is Brahma, the creator God, or Ishvara, or Shiva, or, uh, uh, or um, Yahweh, have it Yahweh. Or the, the Hasidic Jews opened up a fast food chain, right? And their motto is, and uh, so forth. So then the Sautrantikas uh, get very precise and they say there's the, the uh, they deny the self of persons, that there's no uh, experiencer. And that paves the way to accepting the Chittamatra mind only view of the selflessness of phenomena that okay, all the dharmas also have no enduring entity-ness and uh, because there's no partless particles, so they, they have no ultimate uh, irreducible element that makes up what the dharmas are, the phenomena being a translation of dharmas. And so the selflessness, we get the first view of selflessness of phenomena or shunyata, emptiness of both self and other. And finally, the Chichimacha rejection of true existence of external objects um, could pave the way to accepting the Madhyamaka rejection of true existence for even subjective awareness. So what, what he did in that sentence is what Madhyamakas do with Chittamatra is they say that when Chittamatras uh, reject uh, say everything is mind, mind only, they're referring to external objects. That's what the Madhyamakas say. 
not what the chitta mantras say. The chitta mantras actually say everything is mind only. And the, they don't necessarily mean that mind is ultimately true in existence. Um, they don't necessarily mean that, but the Madhyama can say, well, the way your punctuation was placed, literally, it's sort of like the way you worded that implies that mind does exist truly in, in absolute reality. And the, the Madhyama could say that, well, even that mind or self-awareness is not truly existent. And this is the stepwise fashion of understanding these schools. So anyway, so uh, that was a little, uh, I thought, fun discussion of the, the different traditions and what they're at. And, and, you know, we didn't, we're a little bit late, sorry, but we didn't like along the way of the Buddhist schools distinguish, like, what is the relevance of, okay, this whole thing about South Toronto of uh, understanding how perception happens in a different way. Ha does that have any impact on what's the cause of suffering? You know, so that's a, that's a really big question, I think, that's helpful to understand as we go throughout this whole thing. It's like, in, in what way do all these different philosophies, how does it, how do they either refine or build upon or, you know, change that basic um, fundamental premise of Buddhism that there is suffering and suffering, there is cessation of suffering, right? The Four Noble Truths. There is suffering and has a cause and has a cessation and a path. So how do the different views change that fundamental scenario of there's samsara, which has a cause, and there's nirvana that has a cause. So let's remember that as we go through it and see. You know, it's easy to get lost in the trees of like, oh, they believe this and that, and so on and so forth. But what does it matter at the end of the day? Anyway, let's conclude with our uh, dedication of merit. By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death, from the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings. By the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom, may the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled, may all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you very much. Great to see you. Great Take care. See you. see you next week. Bye. Good day.